Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rubenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. Wendell Potter, from Prince of Darkness to Healthcare Superhero. Prior to resignation in 2008, Wendell Potter was Vice President of Corporate Communications for the health insurance company Cigna. He was one of the main forces to prevent the Clinton administration to pass health care legislation. During his tenure, he was instrumental in preventing the health care system to work for those who were ill. Potter has been called the Daniel Ellsberg of corporate America by Michael Moore and the straight shooter by Bill Moyers. Potter is the first and only health insurance insider to have publicly criticized the industry stance on the Obama health care reform, a supporter of the Affordable Health Care Act. Potter correctly predicted in 2010 the final version of the law would increase health insurance profits and argued they would find a way to game the system. He became a vocal advocate for Medicare for All in 2018, saying in September 2019 that it's time to move to a program that makes a lot of sense economically as well as morally. This is Radical Truth. So our guest today is Wendell Potter, who uh, for years was uh, head of communications for one of the leading health insurance industry and uh, had also fought vigorously to prevent a um, Medicare for all or a single payer or, or a healthcare system similar to what we have in Europe or in Asia and then realized this is not actually a good idea. Uh, so I'm, I am thrilled that Wendell is going to join us and share his experiences, his journey that brought him from what was a prince of darkness to the superhero and the leading whistleblower uh, for the, against the healthcare industry. And is there any hope to make a healthcare system that actually works for people who need help? Wendell, thank you for joining us. Robert, thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. This opportunity. Uh, and um, as Robert noted, I, I worked actually for two decades inside two, actually two very big insurance companies, um, Humana and then Cigna. And I rose to lead the corporate communications department actually for both companies, but uh, at a longer tenure at Cigna, uh, which is one of the biggest companies in the country. Uh, and I'll touch on that in just a minute. But um, I, uh, a part of my job, let me just talk about that a bit. One of the, uh, among my responsibilities, I was the company's chief spokesperson. I handled all the company's financial communications to the media for 10 years. Uh, my name was on every earnings release for 10 years, every quarter. Uh, I also had an orientation to Washington. Uh, I not only knew how these companies made money, uh, and uh, where that money came from and what they did with it, but uh, uh, how they spent some of that money on big campaigns to make sure that nothing happened in Washington or the state capitals that might uh, have a detrimental effect on, on the bottom line. So I spent a lot of time in Washington working with our trade association down there, America's Health Insurance Plans, and with my peers across the industry. And over the years, we... Uh, we uh, developed and carried out uh, any just an untold number of propaganda campaigns to scare Americans away from reforms that that would really be good for most Americans, but that uh, air companies did not like because we were fearful that it might uh, uh, impinge on profits. I 
came to have a crisis of conscience uh, at you know about a year or so before I actually left Cigna. Uh, it really began uh, with a trip back home to visit family. I, I grew up in Tennessee. Now I live in Philadelphia and was living in Philly at that time. It was the uh, corporate headquarters for Cigna. I flew back to visit family. While I was there, I read about something called a healthcare expedition that was being held at a county fairground just a few miles away. Uh, my my memory of county fairs was a very positive one. You go to these county fairs, you see prize chickens and 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 sheep and baked goods and good country music. But when I got to this county fair in July of 2007, I saw people who were lined up uh, by the hundreds. People actually were there by the thousands, uh, lined up uh, in the rain, waiting to get care. That I noticed. Uh, in any cases, was being provided in barns and animal stalls. Uh, this in the United States of America, supposedly the, the richest country in the history of the world. Uh, but people I could have grown up with, uh, people I could have been related to, uh, were getting care in barns and animal stalls because they couldn't get it otherwise. Uh, many of them did not have health insurance. Uh, they worked for businesses that weren't big enough to offer health insurance. Uh, most Americans in this country get their coverage through through their employers. Many of them actually did have health insurance, but those plans that they were in had such high deductibles that they, 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 they couldn't pay out of pocket what they had to pay before their coverage would kick in. And I'll touch on that a bit more in a minute. And I realized at that moment, I mean, I've often called that uh, and you know, I had an epiphany that road to that fairground was my road to Damascus because I saw that I had to take some responsibility for what I was seeing um, because I spent many years concocting and carrying out these propaganda campaigns to make Americans think that we have the best healthcare system in the world and that any change that politicians might propose to change our system would not be in their best interest. Um, and these campaigns have been enormously successful. That's why we are where we are today. Um, I was so struck by that. And by the way, I, uh, in my first career, I was a newspaper reporter in Tennessee and then later in Washington. Uh, I covered the White House and Congress, so I know quite a bit about the American political system. Um, but uh, uh, when I was a reporter, I always tried my best to make sure I wasn't misleading anyone, that I was factual. I never knowingly left out crucial details. But I, I had to realize, I had to confront uh, the fact that that's what I was being paid to do in the insurance industry, was to mislead people, was to obscure important information. Uh, at this time that I was on that trip to Tennessee, I was writing a white paper for the industry to try to make people think that the problem of the uninsured was not a big deal, even though 50 million of us at that time did not have health insurance. Uh, I was trying to make people believe that those people were that way by choice, that they just were shirking their individual responsibilities and not buying insurance. One of the things I was obscuring, of course, was that in those days, this was before the Affordable Care Act was passed, insurers could uh, declare you uninsurable uh, and refuse to sell you coverage at any price. And that was a big reason why the number of people had, without insurance had grown so much. Um, other, other people just simply couldn't afford it. Um, I ultimately did leave the industry. There were a few other things that happened uh, uh, that I wrote about in my first book, uh, Deadly Spin. Um, uh, but uh, I uh, thought that, I, you know, I just couldn't keep doing what I was doing. It was uh, uh, a true crisis of conscience. I didn't have anything else lined up. But this this came just at, at a time that we were uh, having um, campaigns for president. Barack Obama was, was a candidate, as was Hillary Clinton uh, and a number of other Democrats at this point. Uh, I knew that uh, health care reform was going to be back on the agenda if the Democrats won. Uh, so after I left, I thought, well, maybe I can work behind the scenes to help uh, some of these campaigns. And uh, after the election, when Obama won, I started spending time working with advocacy groups in Washington, uh, very much behind the scenes. But I ultimately was told 
that if I really wanted to make a difference, I needed to go public with what I used to do, what I knew about the industry. And um, I, I, I decided to do that. I, I felt that if I ever had a chance in my life to make a difference, a meaningful difference, that this might be it. It was a very scary thing, but I agreed to testify before Congress. And I testified before a Senate, at a Senate hearing uh, in 2009. And after that, I testified before a number of other congressional committees while they were d debating the bill that became the Affordable Care Act. And uh, I, I would say that a number of the things that I raised in my testimony uh, wound up being addressed in some way by uh, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and as I noted, uh, uh, after that, I was given the opportunity to write some books. I've done a lot of work with the media. Uh, I've um, uh, my last book, by the way, is called Nation on the Take, how how big money corrupts our democracy and what we can do about it. Uh, and I wrote that because, as I'll note in a minute, uh, that is at the heart of our problem here. And the, the main reason why we still have this mess of a healthcare system, this dysfunctional healthcare system, it is because the entrenched special interests uh, have the ability to call the shots in Washington and their state capitals. Uh, and uh, uh, these companies have grown so big and so powerful that uh, they have been able to block meaningful reform almost at every step. Uh, the, the Affordable Care Act was a notable exception, but uh, even with that bill, the insurance industry, the big drug companies, the big hospital companies were able to write big chunks of it to make sure that their financial interests, interests were protected. And they certainly have been. Uh, these companies or the companies I work for have grown so much bigger in those years since the Affordable Care Act was passed. Here's just, here are just a few examples. When I left Cigna in 2008, it ranked number 141 on the Fortune 500 list of American companies. It now ranks number 13. Uh, two of the other big insurers have pole vaulted into the top 10. CVS Health, which owns Aetna, is now America's fifth largest company. The only companies ranked higher uh, than Aetna are Amazon, Walmart, Apple, and ExxonMobil. And United Health Group now comes in at number seven, just behind Berkshire Hathaway. I mention this just to give you a sense of how big and profitable uh, the health insurance business is in this country and how determined those big insurers are to protect those profits. The public be damned. Even though there is broad public support for reforming our healthcare system, those companies will spend whatever it takes on lobbying, campaign contributions, and propaganda campaigns to maintain the status quo. It's notable that in his speech to Congress last night, uh, President Biden did not spend a lot of time talking about healthcare except to note how he and congressional Democrats are expanding subsidies to the tune of about uh, $200 billion to help more people afford coverage through the so-called Obamacare exchanges or marketplaces. Insurance companies love that idea because it means that they will be getting billions more from taxpayers to cover the premiums of a relatively small percentage of the American population. We have about 331 million people in this country, but only about 7% of us get health insurance through the Obamacare marketplaces. So while those subsidies will help some, it will not benefit the vast majority of Americans, most of whom get their coverage through their employers. It's also noticeable, notable that uh, uh, he did not mention creating a public option that would compete with private insurance companies, even though it was one of his campaign promises. I wasn't surprised. President Biden knows that the moment he and Democrats in Congress begin talking seriously about a public option, my former colleagues in the insurance business will turn their guns on them and they have some mighty powerful guns and unlimited ammunition. They've already turned their, those guns on state lawmakers that want to establish state run public options. There are three states that I know of that are right now trying to do that. Uh, Colorado, Connecticut and Nevada. And the big insurance and hospital companies are pouring just buckets of money into front groups that are spewing out lies and misinformation to scare people in those states into thinking that a public option would lead to calamity. 
I know from my years in the industry that people believe those lies and turn away from policy changes that would benefit them. Uh, we're very gullible and we're easily spooked. Uh, lawmakers and advocates who are behind the public option in Connecticut asked me uh, yesterday to speak at a press conference. I talked about what I used to do for a living, and I, I frankly apologize to the people of Connecticut. I used to live there. I worked for Cigna. I apologize for the role uh, that I played in killing many good health care reform proposals over the years. I told them that when I was in the industry, my top job objective for years was to enhance shareholder value. Uh, these are not uh, triple bottom line companies, I will assure you. Uh, it was not to ensure uh, that our employer customers were getting a good value for, for all the money that they handed over to uh, their insurance companies. It was not to ensure that people enrolled in our health plans were getting the care that their doctors said they needed. No, it was to make sure that Wall Street and already rich investors were happy. I pointed out uh, that among those shareholders are insurance companies, top executives whose bank accounts rise and fall with the rise and fall of the company's stock prices. Uh, that fact alone is all you need to know why enhancing shareholder value is so important to these companies. Speaking of stock prices, this month uh, uh, they have hit all-time highs for big insurance companies. You could have bought a share of uh, stock in Cigna, Anthem, Humana, United Health Group for about 25, between 25 and 50 bucks when the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010. Today, you would have to shell out up to $450 for a single share. I told those, those folks, the, the media in Connecticut, that, uh, that the day I dreaded most during my career was the day that we released our proxy statement because it included the compensation of the company's CEO and other top executives. I dreaded it because I knew I'd have to try to justify their incredibly and outrageously high salaries. A few weeks ago, Cigna's proxy revealed that CEO David Cordani, who I used to work with, made $79 million last year. That amounted to a $60 million raise during the worst pandemic of our lifetimes when millions of Americans lost not only their jobs, but also their health insurance because their insurance was tied to their jobs. I apologize at the press conference for the role that I played in perpetuating a hugely expensive and grossly unfair healthcare system for no reason other than to protect profits and to make Wall Street happy. And make no mistake, Wall Street is even happier today than when I was in the industry. Uh, last year during the pandemic, big insurers uh, not only saw record highs with the stock price, but they posted the biggest profits in their history. Uh, insurers have erected numerous barriers to care that make it more difficult for Americans to get the care that their doctors say they need, but that enables those insurers to make those record profits. One of the barriers takes the form of high deductible plans. A growing number of Americans can't use their insurance because they have to pay so much out of their own pockets before their coverage kicks in that they're not going to the doctor or even picking up their prescriptions. Um, the New York Times this week uh, has a great video. If you get a chance, I encourage you to take a look at it. Uh, uh, they interview people from around the world about what they think of the U.S. healthcare system, and it was very telling, and it bore out what I've heard from other audiences when I've spoken abroad about the U.S. healthcare system. One, they're just baffled. They can't understand the language that you even talk about, uh, talking about deductibles and co-payments and co-insurance and HMOs and PPOs and, and all the lingo that we have to try to figure out in this country. Um, but they can't figure out why we put up with a system in which you have insurance, but you still have to pay thousands of dollars out of your own pocket when you get sick or injured before your insurance company will pay a single dime. Uh, when one of the guys in the video said that it's like uh, paying for Spotify premium, uh, but still having to pay money for every single tune that you listen to. Uh, and that's, that's the way our healthcare system is. Uh, we, uh, it, it's a racket uh, that uh, keeps going on again, because uh, these companies are so powerful and they, they call the shots. 
In the description of this, uh, of, of my time with you, uh, Robert posed this question. What are the barriers to improving America's healthcare system? Well, there's only one real barrier um, uh, to speak of, and it is the power and influence of the health insurance industry and, and its allies, plain and simple. It's an incredibly profitable industry, uh, and they don't want those profits to end. Uh, and they will spend whatever it takes to, to uh, keep the game going. Where I would also ask uh, how investors might support the shift to a universal healthcare system in the U.S. That's a toughie, and I don't honestly have a, a question. I mean, there are a number of very worthy uh, companies in healthcare, a number of startups that uh, can improve the health and well-being of people, not only in this country, but around the world. Um, but I would say this, you can support uh, the effort to get us ultimately to a universal healthcare system by investing in advocacy groups. And uh, uh, these groups are up against uh, these entrenched special interests and in fighting the good fight every day. I lead a, uh, two uh, nonprofit groups uh, that are in this fight. And I'd be very happy to tell you more about it and what our goals are and, and uh, what we're up to and what, how we try to, uh, to, to carry on this fight. Um, but for the, for now, uh, maybe it's time for us to go to a Q and a Robert. Um, mm -hmm. I'd like to know what's on people's minds and, uh, and what questions folks might have. Thank you. Before I thank you very much, Wendell for, I mean, uh, very, very few people will give up what was probably well-paid, cushy or comfortable job. Uh, lots of, you know, perks to actually not be, you know, not be invited anymore to all of these nice parties and, and things. So people often talk about, oh, I really don't like my job, but very, very few actually take the step to not only leave their job, but engage and reveal the dark secrets that they were trying to hide. I was was one. I was always curious about what is the end game of the health insurance industry in America? Because is it well? Basically, we're going to forget the whole retail customer. Forget them. They can't. We can't make money on them. And we're just going to focus on the Amazons and the Microsofts and the big corporates who will pay our health insurance and will make money that way. Is that their end game that they don't? really care that it's completely collapsing for the individual citizen? They don't care uh, because, for one thing, uh, they're focused on short-term profits. Uh, uh, they live quarter to quarter, uh, so that's one thing. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, they're certainly not TBLI companies. <laughs> um, but um, they, uh, the other thing to note, though, is that they're diversifying very rapidly. And even though they are uh, incredibly opposed to any government intervention or uh, broadening of regulations or the government stepping in, in any way to change the way that they do business, they are benefiting uh, immensely from taxpayers. It's not widely understood even in this company, a country that these big insurers are now getting the lion's share of the revenues from taxpayers, from uh, the federal, from federal and state governments. They've gotten their their hooks into the Medicare program, the, one of the most profitable lines of business for them are the so-called Medicare Advantage plans that are uh, private Medicare plans operated uh, by these big insurance companies. The money comes from the federal government. Uh, a lot of Americans don't know the difference between a Medicare, a so-called Medicare Advantage plan and traditional Medicare. Uh, these companies now operate most of the Medicaid programs in this country. And the Medicaid program, for those who are not uh, Americans, or it, that is the uh, program that's implemented at the state level with funding from the federal government as well for poor people. Um, so they're, they're making a lot of money. In fact, uh, as I looked at United and Anthem's first quarter uh, earnings uh, just a couple few days ago, I saw that United and, and Anthem too, and this is consistent, uh, United now gets 72% of its earnings from its health plan business from the federal government, not from the commercial side. And I've, I've been noticing this trend for a long time that the uh, uh, private pay customers and the commercials, commercial payers 
that has been a declining book of business and their enrollment in their health plans has been declining now for quite a long time. Uh, it's, it's, it was a stagnant market when I was there. Uh, and the way these companies were growing then and still do in that business is to steal market share. Uh, they try to get the big uh, accounts from each other. Um, but they also are diversifying a great deal because they, I, they know the, the writings on the wall. These, the way they do business is ultimately not sustainable. And big employers are beginning to catch on to this. Uh, when I was just shortly before I left Cigna, I was in a leadership meeting and someone asked the CEO what kept him up at night. And he said, this intermediation. Uh, and he went on to explain that he was fearful that someday uh, or the company's employer customers would begin to question uh, Cigna's and the industry's value proposition. What good are they if they cannot control healthcare cost and our premiums go up every year and we have to keep pushing more and more people into these high deductible plans? Just today, I saw a survey of, uh, uh, of executives of big companies in this country uh, saying that they now support more government involvement. And that is what might make the difference. I've often said that uh, it will take business leaders waking up to the scam before we see uh, change beginning to happen. And that's one of the reasons why one of those nonprofits I mentioned that I lead is called Business Leaders for Healthcare Transformation. We represent about 3,200 business owners around the country. Most of them are small businesses, uh, but they all are just fed up with our healthcare system. Uh, Many of them can no longer offer coverage to their workers. Uh, but the big insurers have been diversifying. They have international operations. United Healthcare, one of its biggest uh, entities, is called Optum. Uh, it doesn't sell health insurance. It's a data company. It operates a, a pharmacy benefit management company, which is one of the middlemen in, in drug distribution in this country. Uh, so they've been diversifying because I think they see that the, uh, the end is probably in sight for at least health insurance to be changed significantly in this country. Um, I, when I was watching uh, Michael Moore and he had interviewed you and you were telling him how uh, you were trying to kind of sabotage his, his film, uh, Sicko, but you saw the light. You had a kind of crossroad and you decided, I'm taking a different road. Um, and I remember I had a heart operation. I have to take these blood thinners and in the Netherlands, it's very strictly regulated. It's like two bucks for a box of a hundred. They're aspirins. My mother, who's now 95 and she had a heart injury, she had to start taking blood thinners and they were going to charge her $400 for the same box. And I'm thinking, okay, you're saying that they're seeing the writing on the wall. You saw the writing on the wall. You took the different route. And they also have to see their family, these CEOs and their kids. And what is going to take, get, what is the trigger to get through to them? Dude, you are evil. You are evil. Yeah. You are not helping anyone. You know, I, the reason I think that, that it is so hard to get through to these people for them to not see uh, just how evil uh, the the business practices really are uh, is because they're able to lead these lives of, frankly, isolation and insulation. Uh, the CEO that I used to work for and work with, um, just as an example of what his day was like, uh, a lim- you know, a driver would pick him up at his home, uh, drive him to work. He would take a private elevator to his office. Never, ever saw him in the cafeteria with regular folks. Uh, if he had to go to a meeting outside of the office, uh, uh, the, the, the chauffeur was waiting for him to drive in. And if we had to go uh, to uh, uh, Connecticut or Philadelphia, wherever it might be, uh, or Los Angeles, uh, he would take us to a, a private hangar. We'd get on a private jet. Uh, we'd fly. We'd have uh, uh, Cigna employees who were flight attendants serving our lunch. Uh, and then when we got back, that chauffeur would be there waiting for him and take him back to his house. 
So you can live a life like that and not be at, at all aware or come into contact with people who have need, who, who are suffering in this country. I've never seen a single one of those CEOs at a, uh, one of those expeditions that I mentioned, which, by the way, are held almost every weekend, if not more often in this country, uh, not just at county fairgrounds, but all over the country in big cities and small towns. Um, it's put on by an organization that got started in the 80s to try to fly American doctors to South, you know, remote and poor villages in South America. Uh, now, almost all of those expeditions are in this country because there is such a need. Um, but uh, these executives lead this, lead these lives so far removed from the reality of most Americans uh, that I don't think they'll ever change. I think the the system will have to be changed. I've often said that I, you know, for a bit, I for a minute, I thought, well, I can maybe make some changes within from the inside, but you cannot do that. These companies are part of a system that has developed, and not not one CEO, not one company, can really vary too much from the way the that the the rules have been set, or they might set up what they might get what's referred to as adverse selection. They might start getting more sick members and have to pay up more medical claims. So it's a, it's a game that uh, uh, they ultimately, you know, they, they, they wrote the rules for it, but they, there's no way out. It has to be done through government intervention. In my view, there is no market solution, no market-based solutions to this. Uh, I'm going to start taking some, some questions. Uh, any possibility of nonprofit insurance companies taking over the work? You know, I thought that there might be. And uh, we have some fairly good ones. Kaiser Permanente has always had a nonprofit structure. And there still are a few nonprofit Blue Cross Blue Shield plans around the country. The problem is uh, they have had to start doing business just like the big four profits do. Otherwise, they'll start, you know, uh, uh, attracting the patients that, that are too expensive. So for them to keep their doors open, they have to uh, do business the same way that the big four profits have, 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 have set. Uh, they theoretically, they, they could, it could be a lot better uh, if the big four profits would kind of seed that marketplace to for profits. And, and if the government uh, uh, or the big companies that decided ultimately said, that's, we're just not able to make enough in health insurance. The profit margins are shrinking. And I think that could happen. Uh, again, I think the government will need to be involved in, in changing some of those business practices so that those profit margins will begin to shrink. Uh, and then the, uh, these big companies will say, yeah, it's just not worth it anymore. These companies have changed by the way, a lot over the years. When I first went to work for Humana, uh, it was primarily a hospital company. I owned a lot of hospitals around this country, um, in Europe. Uh, I used to go to the hospitals to check them out and work for them in, in London. Um, the company sold those hospitals to focus entirely on managed care. Uh, Cigna, when I went to work for Cigna, had a big property and casualty division, a big reinsurance division, uh, and uh, so did Aetna. And they sold almost all those other divisions to focus on health insurance. Uh, I, I mention this because just to show you that these companies will change and they change when really when when Wall Street uh, says change, uh, that they're not happy with the mix of businesses uh, or see that in some part of the, uh, the operations, they're not making as enough, enough money or as much as they would expect. So uh, they listen when Wall Street, Wall Street speaks. Iker wanted to, well, basically, you're answering this question. How might we change or challenge this problem? Is it just basically the financials, the investors, Wall Street, or the, the corporates that are buying the insurance saying, enough, we're done? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, most of the investors, the shareholders are institutional investors, uh, big pension funds, other big investors. There are relatively few individual investors. Uh, uh, and of course, the executives of these companies hold a you know modest amount of, of of stock, not a huge percentage, but for them it's very important because about ninety percent of the CEO's compensation is so-called at risk, uh, depending on how well the company performs and meets Wall Street's expectations. Uh, but um, uh, uh, the 
you know, the industry just continues to go on. And uh, I think if uh, if investors decide that uh, this is just not working for them, again, if the profit margins begin to deteriorate, uh, they'll take their money elsewhere. So in that sense, the market could change uh, how we do uh, health insurance in this country just by uh, signaling to these these big companies it's time for you to get out of that business and focus on your other lines of business. Just wanted to know, I don't know if you're possible for you to speak of uh, what your opinion is. What is the best healthcare system globally and why so that you've experienced? Obviously you can't know all the healthcare system, but you know, being defined by efficiency, costs and medical outcomes, which, which system do you like? You know, uh, the Commonwealth Fund, uh, which is based in New York, has done a lot of work in this area. They do about every two years. They do um, a pretty comprehensive assessment of the, the performance of healthcare systems in the developed world. And they look at 11 countries. Um, and I, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but they include they certainly include the UK, Germany, France, uh, Switzerland, I think the Netherlands, uh, Japan. Um, uh, and, and, if, and I'm sure there are others that are just not coming to mind. Uh, of those 11, uh, the United States always is right at the bottom in every metric. Uh, sometimes the, the top players change. I think the most recent one, uh, the British system came out on top uh, based on an analysis of all the individual metrics in terms of efficiency and cost uh, outcomes um, and uh, a number of other measures. Um, uh, in previous uh, surveys, the French system has been at or near the top. So is the German system. Uh, so the Scandinavian company countries. Uh, uh, the, the Canadian system is one that's often mentioned as one that could be a model for the U.S. and it ranks higher in almost all metrics than the U.S. Uh, uh, but uh, the Canadian system doesn't rank as high as some of the, the European countries do. Um, the Canadian system uh, has been around since the 1960s. It started at the provincial level. Uh, it's often referred to as a, a single-payer system. Well, it is a single-payer system in which uh, the care is privately delivered, and that's a lot of what Medicare for All advocates talk about in this country, having a system uh, like that. And it, I think it would certainly be a huge improvement over what we have now. And uh, But whether we can get to that point, which uh, we just completely abolish all private insurance companies, that may be uh, a road too far for most Americans. Janelle, Janelle wanted to know, there are many Americans who are not in the favor of universal health care because they think that countries like the Netherlands are socialist for offering it, even if they themselves struggle with the individual Healthcare costs. How effective is the propaganda to convince them to vote against their own interests, and how can they be better educated on these issues? It's a very important question, and it's at the heart of what what's, what the problem is here. Uh, it's as I said earlier, it's it's pretty pretty easy to bamboozle the public, and for years and years. Uh, Insurers have uh, conducted campaigns to make people believe that any kind of reform that they didn't like was uh, a government takeover of health care. They, they, they message has every single phrase and sentence, and they know that that's one that resonates and scares Americans. They often will say that, uh, as Ronald Reagan said, uh, you know, more than 40 years ago, um, or more than 50 years ago when he was uh, a spokesman for the American Medical Association, which was opposed to the establishment of our Medicare program, that uh, if the Medicare program was established, we'd be on the slippery slope, slippery slope towards socialism. And that is a talking point that I often says is evergreen. They keep bringing uh, that up. They will say the same thing with reforms that are proposed today, just as much as they did back then. I think it may uh, may be losing its effect, though, because uh, uh, it was it was more effective on Americans of a certain age who were around uh, uh, during the Cold War uh, or 
you know, like my parents uh, during the Second World War. Uh, but generations are changing, and surveys are showing that young Americans are not as uh, concerned or worried about that term. And in fact, a lot of uh, young Americans embrace socialism. So it's, I think uh, uh, it's one of the reasons I have hope is that uh, with young people coming around uh, and uh, seeing just how broken and ridiculous our healthcare system is and not spooked uh, by the word socialism as our parents have been, that we may make some progress. I when I when I sent out invitations to our network, I got two Americans who for days were sending me these ping pong messages of why we don't want Marxism and what are you talking about? Free will. We don't need big government. And it was going on and on and on. And it really didn't matter what facts you threw at them. They were just bought into the big lie, whether it was Trump you know, won the election or that. And it's just that, um, you know, we, we have also people that that don't really see the big picture in many places, but you can have, you know, a disagreement and not go into such, you know, uh, madness, madness of fear of something that you have no idea what you're talking about. Anyway, James had a question about, I don't know what this means. Can you comment on why Haven failed? I don't know what Haven is yeah. and how they could have fulfilled your vision. Haven uh, is the name of the, uh, I guess you call it a company that was formed by uh, Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and I think City. Ah, okay, okay. okay. Uh, to uh, try to come up with solutions to our mess of a healthcare system. And uh, uh, they hired uh, Atul Gawande, who was a, a, a respected physician and uh, an author, uh, to be the president. And uh, for two years or more, uh, supposedly they were at work trying to figure out what they'd roll out. Um, and they, they, they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> it, just, it, it just finally threw in the towel. And I think uh, what they came to realize is that uh, – uh, even as big as those companies are, all of them certainly in the you know at or near the top of the biggest companies in this country, uh, they're not big enough to really change the system. Now, some some big companies, when they have a concentration of employees in one particular city or area, uh, are bypassing private health insurance companies. Uh, uh, by contracting directly with big hospital systems uh, and uh, uh, disintermediating the insurance companies. Uh, but you have to be a big company with a lot of employees in one place like Boeing does in Seattle or Charleston, South Carolina. And I think they just, they just realize that uh, the problem we have is so immense that there really is not a solution that can be found by business. You have to have government intervention to um, to reform our healthcare system. Otherwise, it's, you know, the incentives are not there for reform to happen. It, is it, it seems that if I see all of these grand projects that Biden is putting forward and that people want universal health care, do you see universal health care happening in this presidency? You know, I think it is. I think it. I think we can make strides toward that. I'm not going to say or predict that we will get there by the end of the Biden administration. I frankly am skeptical that uh, that he and congressional Democrats will make a big push, even for the public option, during at least the first two years of uh, the administration. Uh, as soon as that election was over, uh, attention turned to the 2022 congressional elections, midterms, and uh, Democrats are scared they might lose control of the House or the Senate, maybe both, uh, and that would be the end of the Biden agenda uh, and the Democrats' agenda. So I think that they, they may be cautious and, and, and not undertake something big like uh, a public option. Uh, at least one that would be available to everyone. From what I'm hearing, they may uh, look to uh, lowering the age of eligibility for Medicare from 65 to, say, 60, 
uh, and allow those people who are 60 to 65 to buy into a Medicare public option. Uh, that may be how, how they start. That would help some, uh, but not everybody by any means. So I think it's going to be slow. Uh, and maybe if the Democrats uh, hold on to the House and Senate in 2022, they might be more emboldened to try something bigger and more ambitious uh, after that. Uh, Baker wanted to know, I don't know, she wants to know, would shaming them work? I mean, you've been shaming them for a long time. Has it worked? The shameless. <laughs> <laughs> the shameless. Uh, I mentioned uh, that press conference I was on uh, yesterday uh, for Connecticut Advocates. Uh, just a few days before that, uh, the CEOs of these big insurance companies sent a letter to the governor threatening to leave Connecticut, take their employees out of Connecticut if uh, lawmakers there moved ahead uh, uh, with a public option. Connecticut's a small state, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, these companies do very little business in Connecticut. Uh, Cigna doesn't insure a single person in Connecticut in the individual market and has no small business customers in Connecticut. But they threatened to, you know, pull up and take their toys and go away. Uh, so, and they have a lot of jobs in Connecticut. It's uh, Hartford's the so-called insurance capital of the, of the world, and Cigna and and Aetna are both based there. But it's intimidation. They're they're completely shameless. They will do whatever it takes uh, to uh, keep the game going and protect those profits. Um, Beata wanted to know, can Wall Street withdraw and bring in a new player with the backing from institutional investors? You know, I, I wish, but the, the, the barriers to entering the insurance market are extraordinarily high. Um, you've got um, a, a company called Oscar that started in New York and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's gotten some, it's grown some. Uh, but it's very, very hard to establish um, business in any market. Uh, healthcare is delivered locally. Uh, insurance is regulated largely at the state level. You know, uh, Trump and Republicans talked a lot about uh, the need to allow insurance companies to sell coverage across state lines because it's uh, regulated at the state level. Uh, there is this myth that an insurance company in Tennessee can't sell coverage in, in, uh, in Georgia. Well, they can. There's been no law against it. They just have to, you know, uh, uh, be regulated by Georgia as well as in Tennessee. Uh, but they also have to make sure that they're creating the so-called network of doctors and hospitals. And uh, uh, they have to have a significant uh, uh, number of enrollees on their health plans to be able to negotiate favorable rates with the big hospitals in a given market. So it's kind of the chicken and the egg kind of thing. Uh, you have to have a significant uh, number of enrollees in your health plans uh, before you can negotiate favorable rates with, uh, employ- with uh, hospitals and doctors. Um, and if you can't do that, you can't attract new customers. So it's extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and I, 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 I just don't think that Wall Street's going to get behind uh, a new entrant uh, in, in, the, in the health insurance game. Arthur wanted to know, how is primary care organized in the United States? Is there even an infrastructure of family doctors? No. No, there is not. There's no infrastructure, no national infrastructure of anything uh, in this country. Uh, the, uh, there is... I mentioned Kaiser Permanente a few minutes ago. It's a, uh, a nonprofit uh, integrated healthcare system uh, based in, in California. It has a pretty big market share in Western states and some other, a few other states. Um, uh, it does a pretty good job with primary care and coordinating care between a, a primary care physician and a specialist. Uh, the trade off is that you have to use doctors that are employed by Kaiser. Uh, and get your care uh, in a Kaiser-owned facility for the most part. I mean, they do have other plans, but um, there, there, but generally, there is there is 
There is no real structure for primary care. Uh, there are advocates that I work with who uh, are trying to get uh, uh, universal access to primary care um, uh, in Vermont, for example. But that's that's even a hard and heavy lift. Um, it's and we have a, a shortage of primary care physicians in this country. Uh, a, a big and, and it's because of the cost of medical education being so damn high uh, that uh, medical students choose not to go into primary care because they can't make enough money to, to cover their their student loan debts. Nancy wanted to know, could a divestment adv advocacy effort have a positive impact, uh, help move it to a rational, a national healthcare system? Absolutely think that is a possibility. And, uh, and that I appreciate that question because it really does kind of answer one of the questions that you posed. Uh, uh, there are some active, activist uh, uh, institutional investors that hold some uh, substantial shares in these companies. Uh, a lot of uh, unions uh, have investments in, in these companies. Uh, so I think it's possible. Uh, one of the things I used to do for a living was work with our corporate st secretary uh, for uh, uh, our annual meetings in which, you know, there could be shareholder resolutions uh, that uh, uh, shareholders would, would have, you know, in many cases uh, be in front of them to vote on. Uh, generally, we were able to beat back those shareholder resolutions, but I think that is one avenue. Uh, and I would certainly encourage anyone uh, listening in to, uh, uh, if, if they uh, if they own shares in some of these big companies, I would prefer that they <laughs> divest. Uh, <laughs> but if you do, uh, and you own a substantial number of shares or have access to or able to influence a big institutional investor that does, encourage them to take a look at how these companies really do business. Um, I, in the past, have worked with some uh, uh, of these groups uh, that are interested in trying to make changes at that level, and I would certainly encourage it and think that could lead to something. James wanted to know, what would it take for provider-sponsored coverage plans to be competitive with traditional insurance, example, direct primary care, full benefit, multi-special, specialty IPA groups? You have to be pretty substantially, pretty big uh, to be able to pull that off. Uh, uh, actually, in my, my first role in healthcare back in the 80s, I worked for a fairly large regional healthcare system in Tennessee that uh, was owned and operated hospitals, uh, but they had started their own HMO. Uh, and that was my 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 first awareness of involvement in, in the managed care business. Uh, but it was it was difficult because uh, they didn't really know how to run an HMO, how to make it profitable, how to make it uh, uh, succeed without, you know, uh, uh, being a, a big drain on the overall company's finances. So it's difficult. Uh, but there are some uh, of the big hospital systems in this country that actually have gotten into that business and are doing uh, fairly well uh, over in Pittsburgh. Uh, one of the big hospital systems has uh, uh, its own health insurance business. So you see that from, from place to place. Uh, they're not necessarily doing business in any meaningfully better way than the other companies are. Uh, and it's, it, it's very difficult for physician groups uh, to get into this business because the cost is so high and the barriers are so high. Have you been one, 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 one more point on that? Uh, these big companies uh, talking about diversity. United Healthcare, United Health Group is now the largest employer of physicians in the United States. It employs uh, more than 50,000 doctors. Uh, they own a lot of physician practices uh, and, and, and specialty businesses. So uh, uh, these companies, uh, they're, their growth in recent years, when I was in the industry, most of the acquisitions were, were horizontal, buying up smaller companies. Now it's vertical. Was, has the Biden administration or Bernie, when he was running for president, ever reached out to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've 
talk more to Bernie and his people than I have the Biden folks. I do know people in the Biden administration. I have, have never talked to Joe Biden, mm. uh, but I I do as part of the work I do talk to members of Congress on a regular basis, uh, including Bernie. He called he called me uh, now a few months ago to ask if if we could be of help uh, and really bringing the business voice to healthcare reform because it's in the past it's been been missing in action. And there's been this perception that employers don't want change, uh, that they, uh, you know, they've been kind of in lockstep with the insurance industry. And that's been another reason why it's been so hard to, to move forward. But I am seeing that change, as I said earlier. Uh, and uh, it's, again, one of the reasons I started this advocacy group that I did. And uh, uh, I, I think we will start seeing change. But I also uh, uh, think it's important to work with members of Congress uh, uh, on both sides of the aisle. Uh, as you can imagine, most of the people I am in touch with are Democrats because they're more inclined to, uh, to go forward with, uh, with meaningful reform. Uh, but uh, I do hope and will be working to influence the Biden administration, in particular, uh, one of the big projects that I have, my team and I, uh, over the, the next several months is to raise awareness of just the uh, burden of these high deductible plans. We're, we're, we're forming a coalition of various groups to really raise that as an issue and put pressure on the Biden administration. Can you can you reform the healthcare system, I mean, if you could wave your magic wand, this is the system that we need in place. Does it also mean that you would have to address all of these court cases where doctors are being sued and malpractice insurance? I don't think that that level of malpractice cases happens in Europe, which probably also creates another level of cost. So what yeah. is, you know, raise, wave your magic wand, what would uh, Wendell Potter's healthcare system, where Haven failed, yours would work? Well, I think it probably would be one. Uh, I would say a uniquely American system uh, <laughs> to use a, a, a trite expression, but one that would borrow from those those other ten developed countries that. Uh, we, we we don't do a very good job in this country of looking abroad. We we have this thing of American exceptionalism. We can't think, imagine anybody in any other country could do anything better than we do. But I think if we if policymakers really would look at uh, some of the things that are being done done well in other countries, we could cobble together a system that would uh, um, be unique and probably fit America better than the Canadian system would. I don't think we could just um, bring that system down here. Um, I think that we probably will need to have some kind of choice. Uh, Americans uh, love to think that choice is important. Uh, so we might need to have something like the French or the Germans have in terms of having some, uh, some choice of health insurers, uh, but it needs to be uh, insurance that is highly regulated and the rates set by government. But are you, but you're, you seem guardedly optimistic because of the, 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 the it seems like the corporates are also getting tired of paying a lot and getting very little. Yeah. So m maybe this is the time where, you know, actually, uh, I remember when I was in the hospital, my mother kept calling me when I had my heart operation, you know, do you need any money? I said, why would I need any money? I'm in the hospital, even in my own room. You know, yeah, but you're not everything is covered. And I said, of course, everything is covered. It was just so foreign, yeah. the idea of all these massive deductibles that yeah. you have to pay. And it, it builds up uh, quite a lot. Um, it, it's just so hard to comprehend. I mean, I admire that you've been in the trenches for quite a while fighting this fight and you still have great spirit to keep the fight going. I, I, I realized at the very beginning that you had to be in this for the long haul and uh, uh, the reforms that I advocate for may not happen in my lifetime. I think they actually will, to be honest with you, 
because of some of the things that, that we've touched on, I think employers are realizing they've been sold a bill of goods by the insurance industry. I think people are paying attention and realizing uh, just what it, what it means to be in a high deductible plan and not having the money uh, to get the care that you need. Uh, and I think, as I said earlier, generational change is important. Uh, people are not so susceptible and gullible to propaganda campaigns as they used to be. So I think there are trends, some factors, some changes that uh, give me hope and uh, make me want to stay in the game here. What what can um, when I send uh, I'll send everybody a link for those who didn't watch the live presentation. They can watch it, and I'll add the two books that you wrote if people want to order that. So they. But what can the this audience that's listening now? and the tape version, what can they do to help you? Well, I appreciate that. Uh, check out the organizations, and if you can send it out. But uh, And they can also reach out to me directly. I can give you an email address. But the Center for Health and Democracy is one of my nonprofits, the one that I work more under than anything else. And that's centerforhealthanddemocracy.org. And you can reach me at Wendell at Cigna, excuse me, Wendell at centerforhealthanddemocracy.org. The other is business leaders for healthcare transformation, uh, and uh, uh, check us out there too. That's the organization that's bringing small business business together. We're we're nonprofits. Uh, obviously, we rely on the good graces of people who want to fund the work that we do. So we would certainly be uh, be receptive to any contributions you might want to make. But just any ideas you have, and and join our mailing list and stay in touch with us and and uh, give us your thoughts and uh, support any way you can. Thank you to our guests and audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe where you listen to your podcast. This was Radical Truth. Stay safe. Stay safe.